right now on Matter of Fact. The numbers don't lie. Where you grow up really matters in achieving the American dream. When you drive through Evanston, you can see a distinction between neighborhoods and how they have been divided off throughout its history. The impact of living on the other side of the tracks and when hunger hits home. Thank you. Twice a month, I walk a mile to the food pantry to pick up groceries. One person's wake-up call to the country's food crisis. Then... What does it feel like to have your name etched in marble? It means quite a bit. Meet the Librarian of Congress who isn't just protecting American history, she's making it. Plus, a mysterious illness kills apple trees across the country, leaving growers in a panic and scientists puzzled. And the growth of graffiti from street art to activism. The spray paint, the markers, the stickers has now become the tool of the American protester. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Evanston, Illinois plans to pay some black residents for the harm it caused by discriminatory housing policies. This form of reparations is believed to be the first of its kind in the U.S. and could be a model for the nation. Of course, it has critics, some who say it's unnecessary, others who say it's not enough. The program offers up to $25,000 for a down payment on a home or to make home repairs. Study after study has shown that five numbers, your zip code, can determine your destiny. A question as simple as, where are you from, can let you know if somebody's had a fair shot at success in America. Our correspondent, Joey Chen, reports from her childhood home in Evanston. We all know, don't we, what it means to be from the right side of the tracks, even when it's just the very edge of privilege. That's my story and my house. The house I grew up in, the very last house before the tracks. In the late 1960s, we were the only Asian family in the neighborhood. I thought the outliers. But the white kids, the black kids, in this integrated progressive enclave, surely their opportunities were equal. I think we thought we were woke. Yeah, not the case. <laughs> At the Shorefront Legacy Center, Dino Robinson documents the history of African Americans on Chicago's North Shore, particularly in our diverse suburb. So Evanston's great on paper that it looks diverse, but when you drive through Evanston, you can see a distinction between neighborhoods and how they have been divided off throughout its history. Those divisions are part of Evanston's origin story, an early version of the Great Migration at the start of the 20th century. I'll time frame it in this way. It's about between 1910 and 1930, where you had a huge influx of uh, black families uh, coming directly from specifically Abbeville, South Carolina. And that was due to a tragedy where a gentleman was lynched. So there was a mass exodus of black families leaving that area of South Carolina to uh, come north to Evanston. As the black population grew, so did the efforts to contain it. African-American families were pushed toward the west side of town, the other side of the tracks. The pink area, marked as D2 on this map, where redlining systematically depressed real estate values, steered away investment, 
and stack the financial deck against generations of Black Evanstonians. The Black kids I grew up with, particularly the Black boys, did they have the same opportunity that I did? And I would say no. Uh, the Black boys especially. When we looked block after block across the U.S. and we asked, is there any place where we can see black kids having as good outcomes as white kids. And the very discouraging finding was there's essentially no such place in America. In 99% of blocks in America, white kids and white men in particular have better outcomes than black men. And Raj Chetty has the data to prove it. His Opportunity Atlas breaks down America block by block. And my hometown exactly captures the story of inequality in America. That's what I think is striking about it, that you really see two very different pictures on two sides of the railroad track. Often seen as a model of social engineering through education, the city has just one giant public high school, Evanston Township, or ETHS, where enrollment reached nearly 6,000 in the early 1970s. With the same academics and activities promised to all, and yet... The numbers don't lie. That's exactly right. The numbers don't lie there, unfortunately. I mean, I think the truth is we may perceive that people are having similar experiences. We may perceive that they're integrated. But when you're looking at how kids are doing 10 years, 20 years after graduating from high school, their life trajectories look very different by race and ethnicity. That's just a fact. But that's not the whole story, Chetty says. Friends, mentors, social networks all play a role, as does that age-old question. Where are you from? So what we've learned is where you grow up really matters for your chances of achieving the American dream. So basically where you live from birth to say your early 20s uh, seems to matter a great deal. And every extra year that you grow up in a better neighborhood, a neighborhood with better schools, better access to opportunities, the, the better you end up doing in the long run. So depending on your childhood address, the journey to that American dream may be shorter and easier to travel. My first thought would not be, where are you from? As far as I know, you grew up in Evanston. You're an Evanstonian. <laughs> Even when it's a little house, just on the right side of the tracks. For a matter of fact, I'm Joey Chen in Evanston, Illinois. This is just one of the topics we explored in our recent special, To Be an American, Identity, Race, and Justice. You can hear from guests Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter and creator of the 1619 Project, comedian Gina Brion, the director Shaka King, and Native American activist Nikki Petrie. You can stream the full series on matteroffact.tv. Coming up, what's taking a big bite? out of apple crops. And it's been called the most beautiful building in Washington. Stained glass windows, the arches, I mean, it's just phenomenal. It is, and it's all about knowledge and books. We take you inside the largest library in the world. Welcome back, everybody. This week is National Library Week, and the theme is Welcome to Your Library. 
Many aren't open and encourage you to make a virtual visit. Libraries stretched their services to help patrons during the pandemic, offering Wi-Fi hotspots, book deliveries. Some even became hubs for health care. Before the pandemic, we took you inside America's library with Carla Hayden, the Librarian of Congress, who says no matter what's happening, the mission remains the same, to serve the community. It's so nice to be here. This is such it's a beautiful wonderful. space. Thanks for talking with me. And thank you because this is the nation's library and it represents what libraries do throughout the country and communities on campuses. Have libraries changed dramatically? I mean, when I was a kid, I think libraries were thought of as very special and important. And in those many years, there's less investment. Um, I think some people think they might be less relevant than they were years ago. Libraries are still special and important and in different ways. There are libraries that have sections called Beyond Books where you can check out a sewing machine. You can check out tools that you need. Out you of the library? Out, out of the library. The number one thing that people are going into public libraries for now is information about health. And so they're relevant in different ways. You are the first woman to be the librarian of Congress. And when you think about the number of women who are in the field, that's a bit of a shocker. You're the first person of color and you're the first librarian since 1974. I'm a threefer <laughs> <laughs> because librarianship is a profession that uh, is a feminized profession. 85% of the workforce is female. However, the top management in most libraries doesn't reflect that fact. So as the first woman to be librarian of Congress since 1802, uh, that's something. And the first person of color, uh, I descended from people who were forbidden by law to read in this country. And to be a person of color at the helm of this symbol of knowledge and reading and learning and literacy is personally very significant for me. You famously kept the library uh, in Baltimore open um, during the protests after Freddie Gray's death. And I think a lot of people would have said, listen, shut it down, tamp it down, just don't open. And, and you said, no, we're gonna open, why? Because we knew in this, that city that the library was a lifeline. It was directly across from the burning building and the car. And people use that library to really connect with things that help them in their lives. And so the morning after, 10 o'clock, there was a young man there to fill out on the computer a job application. And then two days later, he came back and said, thank you, I have an interview. Mm. So that's why we knew in that time that the library had to be open. Do you have a favorite volume? I know it's sort of like, you run the Library of Congress, you have access to everything, but still. My favorite book is actually a children's book. It was called Bright April. And I was an eight-year-old little brown girl with pigtails, I was a brownie. And this book was about a brown girl with pigtails who was a brownie. And it was the first time that I saw myself in a book. It was a window to the world reading for me, but it was never a mirror. And that's why Bright April will always be my favorite book. What are you most proud of what you've been able to accomplish? 
What I'm most proud about is that we are going to really make a push to make our collections accessible online. We've digitized the papers of Rosa Parks, the papers of and diary of Teddy Roosevelt, that we've been able to digitize the papers of Billy Strayhorn, who was the composer that worked with Duke Ellington. So that's what I'm proud about, that we're gonna open up this treasure chest, we're gonna make it relevant. So that is what I'm really excited about. Well, congratulations oh. on all that you've accomplished and all that you still have yet to do. Happy National Library Thank Week. Thank you. Next, street art got its start a long time ago. As long as man has been around, I mean, from the cave paintings. What you can learn from the markings on a wall. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. As thousands of Americans use their voices to protest inequity in America, artists let their brushes speak, and those messages often intersect. Art and politics reflecting history in the making. Two activists in D.C. explain the power of paint. Graffiti has always been used as a communication device. The spray paint, the markers, the stickers, the wheat paste, you name it, um, has now become the tool of the American protester. My name is Corey Stowers. I've been writing graffiti for 25 years. It's a very, very thin line between a street artist and a social justice protester. Street art is nothing new. It's been around for a long, long time. It's a way to send messages to one another. Hi, my name is Andy Shalal. I'm the CEO and founder of Busboys and Poets, a local community space. Did anybody go to Black Lives Matter Plaza last night? Behind me is the Peace and Justice Wall, which represents much of the civil rights struggles that have taken place here. I think that street art in Washington, D.C. has always been very important because of our proximity to, you know, national power. We and obviously we get people coming in from all over the country to protest on any number and, and range of issues. We had an incident that happened where one of our storefronts were broken and we decided to fix it by putting a piece of plywood temporarily until the glass arrived. So when we put up the plywood, it looked like a canvas and I'm an artist, so I decided to paint something on it and I decided that I'm gonna call a few friends that have storefronts and ask them if it's okay for us to paint their storefronts. And we send out artists, we paid them to go do the work the artists were more than happy to do this because they've been isolated and they want to be out there. I've seen a lot of uh, what you call virtue signaling, um, you know, here in Washington, D.C., businesses boarding up and then asking for artists, uh, particularly artists of color, to come and paint messages of solidarity on their, on their storefronts. With that being said, I've seen so many new artists uh, come out during this pandemic and during this summer of awakening. Graffiti art had to mature. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, that graffiti going into the galleries in the 1980s has now spilled back out onto the streets and the streets are now the gallery. It used to be illegal to paint anything on anything really that's public and suddenly our mayor commissions somebody to paint Black Lives Matter on a street that otherwise would have gotten you arrested. There are many other cities that picked up on that act and, and brought it into their own cities. My hope is that with this new administration, street art will continue to thrive because we are all in need of healing and artists are gonna be the ones that are gonna take us there.
Still ahead on Matter of Fact. You don't want to think of yourself as part of the city's poor, but nevertheless, you need food. He's helping others eat while he's one of the 42 million Americans struggling to put food on his own table. But first, apple trees are suddenly dying and scientists don't know why. Now the government's stepping in to help root out a culprit. matter of fact, a mysterious phenomenon has been killing apple trees across North America. It's left growers panicked and scientists puzzled. It's called rapid apple decline, or RAD. Apple trees appear healthy at the start of the season and might even produce a full crop. Then the trees suddenly die. RAD has been documented since 2013, but researchers still don't know what causes it. Scientists say that common causes for apple tree death, like root rot, infestation, or fungus, don't explain what's happening to trees that have been affected by RAD. Rapid apple decline has affected nearly 80% of the orchards in North Carolina. This month, the U.S. Department of Agriculture gave scientists a grant for nearly $300,000 to learn more about the issue. According to the USDA, apples are one of the country's most valuable fruit crops, worth about $4 billion every year. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, a growing need for help will remain even after the pandemic ends. We should continue to support our food pantries. More than 40 million Americans still don't know where their next meal is coming from. this year, it is projected that 42 million Americans won't know where their next meal is coming from. That is one out of every eight people. Those most impacted were food insecure or at risk of food insecurity before COVID-19 and are facing a greater hardship now. My name is Brett Pavia and I live in the city of Milwaukee. Twice a month, I walk a mile to the food pantry to pick up groceries. So I work in the hospitality industry, and when COVID-19 hit, they had to close down the hotel, and we were all laid off. Part of my job, I received tips, and all that extra money was lost. So the food pantry really helps um, fill in that gap. My first time to go as a shopper was a, a time of um, true humiliation, because I've uh, always worked hard, and provided for myself and to not be able to do that and to actually need like a food handout it's a humbling experience well, thank you I started to think you know I should really give back I shouldn't just take from the pantry and I approached the director of the food pantry and asked if there was an opportunity to volunteer what I've learned from helping at the food pantry is that there's an ongoing need to feed people in our city that after COVID uh, ends and we go back to normal, there'll still be people who don't have a means to, to make money to feed their family. And that we should continue to support our food pantries, volunteer, donate food. That's really a fulfilling experience when you see the people in need uh, get the food that they, they need to feed their families. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. You can see this story again, along with our feature on how zip codes help determine your destiny. 
a look at the power of street art. Or you can go inside the nation's library with Carla Hayden, the Librarian of Congress. Just go to matteroffact.tv. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.